1: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio.
0: What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. I have just read a provocative new book, new insofar as it's been released in paperback. It's a New York Times bestseller by Dr. Nasir Gami. And it addresses this provocative question. Should the mentally ill be excluded from positions of political power? In his book, A First-Rate Madness, he argues the following. The best crisis leaders are either mentally ill or mentally abnormal. The worst crisis leaders are mentally healthy. This is Dr. Gami here to make his points. Doctor, thanks so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Glad to be with you.
0: You delve deeply into a number of well-known personalities, some contemporary, some historical figures. Ted Turner makes that list. Let's start with him. What's known about Ted Turner from a mental health standpoint?
2: Well, um, about uh, 20 years ago in the early 90s, he was public about having been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and being treated with lithium and uh he stated at the time that it was helpful to him and and he was married at the time to jane Fonda and c n n was doing very well and um some years later he uh went publicly said that he didn't think he had bipolar disorder anywhere any anymore he went off lithium and that's when he got divorced and also sold uh c n n or or merged c n n with Time Warner and then ended up losing the uh, the network. So there was a time when he was quite open about having bipolar illness and being treated for it.
0: What does that mean? That diagnosis is something that as lay people I don't know that we totally understand.
2: Well, it basically means having moods episodes of either depression or mania. Mania is the opposite of depression. So depression we understand is being slowed down in your thinking, movements and feelings. And then to severe cases one can even be suicidal. Uh, Mr. Turner's father, for instance, was diagnosed with manic depressive illness, was psychiatrically hospitalized and committed suicide. It is a highly genetic condition. Um, And the opposite of depression, the manic side, is when you have uh, rapid increased movements, feelings, and thoughts. And so your energy level is up. You're much more productive. You're doing many things. On the extreme end, you can be impulsive and do things that can be harmful to you, like spending a lot of money or getting into car accidents. So it's basically your moods going up and down more severely than in the average person.
0: So is your argument, do you go so far? I know the answer of course, but I'll ask for the benefit of my radio audience. Do you go so far as to argue that Ted Turner was a success because of rather than despite his bipolar symptoms?
2: Exactly. Um, I'm not saying it's the only reason he's a success, but I think it was a necessary ingredient in his personality and his education and, in his knowledge, every, all of the things that it makes up to be a human being, one part of it is our psychology. And when one has manic depressive illness as a genetic condition, it becomes part of who you are. And that is actually a benefit if you want to be an entrepreneur because How the manic so? symptoms make you. Okay. Well, the, so the, there are some positive aspects to having these conditions, and the, along with the well known negative ones. And those research has shown that manic states are associated with increased creativity and increased resilience to trauma. That means that you'll be doing more things that other people can't think of. And also when you run into problems, you survive it better and you come back from that. Depressive symptoms are associated with increased empathy towards others and increased realism. You're able to be more aware of your circumstances in a more realistic way. And these traits are exactly what makes for a great crisis leader.
0: I'm going to ultimately ask you, but what about in a non-crisis time? But uh, let's not go there yet. Let's talk about a few other examples from your book. Uh, The man of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. First of all, why does he even factor into a book like A First-Rate Madness?
2: Well, Churchill is is one of the cases, I think, that's very well established. Um, He was uh, diagnosed and treated with psychiatric conditions while he was uh, 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 living. His physician uh, wrote his uh, published his diaries about 10 years later after churchill died documenting all this churchill was diagnosed with severe depressive episodes had them he was treated with amphetamines for them which is was the standard treatment in the 1930s and 40s and he was also diagnosed with cyclothymia which is exactly this manic depressive mild mood swings that people can have all the time they're always a little up and down and that was one of the diagnoses his neurologists gave him and um I think that, that, again, Churchill showed a lot of realism in the 1930s when uh, everyone else was um, more or less ignoring the Nazi threat, and he was very depressed at the time. There were times he couldn't even get up and go to Parliament. He expressed suicidal thoughts at times. At the same time, he was a very creative and uh, resilient person, obviously, in terms of uh, being the leader that stood up to um, the the Nazi threat and got England through World War II, Um, and you know his his creativity is really incredible too. Franklin once Franklin Roosevelt once said of Churchill that he has a thousand ideas a day, four of which are good, and that's the kind of thing <laughs> you see in these kinds of leaders.
0: You you paint a contrast in the book between Neville Chamberlain, the the man known and and I guess the synonym now for his last name is appeasement, and Churchill. Uh, Chamberlain being the the mentally stable between the two. How do you think that it benefited the UK, the world at large? that churchill fought these demons during the course of his life
2: well i think he uh, really was the savior of the country and in, through the 1930s for about a decade chamberlain uh, and uh, chamberlain's mentor the prior prime minister were um you know very stable very um, rational individuals so chamberlain had been a mayor of a major city in england and it had been a very popular and, and successful leader of the conservative party the rank-and-file loved him he rose through the ranks and during the peace and prosperity of the nineteen twenties he was great in the nineteen thirties he was still popular but he just ignored the, the what was happening and um... when churchill was finally made prime minister after a decade of being uh, in the wilderness as he famously said uh, some of the people in, in his party were so nervous they said uh, you know we can't believe that Now he's going to be the leader of this party. People didn't think he could handle it. He was too um, unstable in a way, they thought. But in fact, when the crisis came, he was the most uh, resolute and stable and clear leader that you could have. And uh, he clearly was the man that they needed. And to to your point, he had to suffer for about a decade or two through a lot of depression and a lot of isolation uh, in order to be available for England when they needed him.
0: But Dr. Gami, are you saying that because he was constantly dealing with, as he put it, the the black dog, the depressive Mm -hmm. periods in his life, that he was by nature pessimistic, glass half empty, and when some saw the threat of the Nazis on the horizon, he assumed the worst because he suffered from depression, whereas a Neville Chamberlain, who was more mentally stable, didn't appreciate what Churchill saw?
2: Yes, you could put it that way, although I would adjust that a little bit. That's, I would say that Chamberlain addressed the pro- Nazi threat in a very rational way, assuming he was de- dealing with a very rational man. You know, People said he was like an engineer trying to come to an agreement with, with Hitler, and that's not the way Hitler worked. Hitler, as, as, you, as you know, in my book I also wrote about Hitler having bipolar illness. Uh, Churchill... Um, I don't think he was just pessimistic. I think he was realistic. And let me put it to you this way. There, there's this research that's called that describes what's called depressive realism. And it shows that when people have mild depression, and then they're doing experimental tasks where you're essentially assessing their ability to be aware of how much they control the environment, people with mild depression realistically assess their ability to control their environment. Whereas people who do not have any depression at all, who are completely mentally healthy, Overestimate their control of their environment. It's called mild and normal positive illusion. So it's normal for us to be a little illusionary, to think we control things a little more than we do, to be a little more optimistic than reality warrants. But when you're in a major international crisis and the lives of millions of people can fall on the balance of a little bit of positive illusion, it's better to be a little bit depressed. That's what Churchill was. It wasn't that he was pessimistic, he was realistic.
0: You have a chapter about the the Kennedys, JFK in particular, sickness in Camelot. Were his maladies strictly physical or physical and psychological?
2: They were physical and psychological. So Kennedy um, is another example of someone that we can now speak about with a lot of detail. And in all these cases, I'm really not speculating. I, I have a good deal of written documentation, medical records, private letters, doctors' reports, and so on. In the case of Kennedy... About uh, 40-some years after he died, his medical records were made available for the first time by his family uh, very generously. Everything is available now for scholars. Now, you have to be a physician to look at them, but they make it available to you. And I, and I looked at them. I believe I'm the first psychiatrist to do so. And uh, Kennedy's medical records clearly state that he was diagnosed with Addison's disease most of his adult life. This is the the disease of the adrenal glands, where you, the glands do not produce steroid hormones. And if you don't get steroid hormones, then essentially you can't fight off infections. And in the pre-antibiotic era, the, you would die from that. The, the mean lifespan was about 30 years old. And it's sort of like having AIDS. Your immune system is not able to function because the steroids aren't available. Kennedy was lucky in that in the 1940s, antibiotics got developed and then steroids were developed for the first time as a treatment. So through the late 1940s and into all the 1950s, he was being treated with antibiotics and steroids for repeated hospitalizations for Addison's disease. One of the things that Addison's disease can also do is it can cause depression because if you don't have any steroids, uh, which are somewhat required for your mood, you can get depressed. And so Kennedy had periods of depression in the 1950s where sometimes he was even suicidal and thought about drowning himself. Even in the White House, I discovered for the first time he was treated for depression with psychiatric medication, briefly. And one other thing to add about it, steroids are needed for Addison's, but as we know very well with athletes and so on, steroids can be abused because they make you feel more happy, more aggressive. In In a word, they make you more manic. They increase your energy level and can cause manic states as well if their dose is high enough and in people susceptible to it. And Kennedy was abusing steroids and getting excessive amounts of them throughout the late 1950s and into the first two years of his presidency until his doctors finally got it under control and got him to use uh, average amounts instead of high amounts before the Cuban Missile Crisis, thankfully.
0: I was just going to ask, because I don't recall reading in the book a discussion of what went on during the course of the Missile Crisis and whether these factors uh, played a role.
2: Absolutely. It, it, before the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in late October, in late 1962, Kennedy had been e- abusing steroids a lot. I've documented in the books, uh, the medical records, his doctors would document exactly how much testosterone she would inject into him each day. And uh, there's, he was very erratic. He was very un- unproductive and unsuccessful as a president until then. But just before 1962, one of the White House doctors, Admiral George Berkeley, finally uh, decided to intervene and got Robert Kennedy to agree with him. And without Robert Kennedy's intervention, it wouldn't have happened. They essentially did an intervention where they stopped uh, President Kennedy from getting any injections from the other White House doctor who was his personal physician. And he was flying in another doctor from New York who was injecting him with substances, which they didn't even know what it was. They stopped all that, and they got him on very low-dose pills. And uh, about a month or so later, we were almost in the middle of a nuclear war, and President Kennedy handled it with the resilience and the rationality and the realism that we all know probably saved the world uh, from a, a war. And the next year, he totally changed his civil rights policies and became the very proactive and committed president that he was in that arena, whereas before he'd been waffling on that topic for quite a while. So my, my view is that the, the great President Kennedy that we know in the last year of his presidency really came about because his steroid use became under control and then his moods stabilized and he, uh, you know, he became a more um, productive and effective leader.
0: This is Dr. Nasir Gami. He's a Tufts University psychiatry professor. The book is titled A First-Rate Madness.
1: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to
2: develop. Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact.
1: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS SiriusXM Channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: I promise, doctor, I'm not giving it all away for free. I I have just uh, two, okay, two or so final questions, if I mind, and thank you for being gracious with your time. What about in a time of non crisis? Do you want, I mean, you're making the argument, and I think you're making a, a very provocative, very effective argument that suggests that a person with some mental illness or mental abnormalities is actually well-suited in a time of crisis as a political or even military leader. But what about when it's not a time of crisis?
2: Right. So my argument is is basically both sided. I say that in a time of crisis, this is the kind of leader we need. But when it's not a time of crisis, when the past predicts the future, when there's peace and prosperity, when essentially you don't really need a leader to do much, You just need them to be there administering things, supervising things, but not really being very creative or or intervening. Then uh, normal mentally healthy leaders are fine. People who uh, have a little positive illusion, they're optimistic, they have good social relationships, they get along with everything, they keep things moving smoothly. That's fine under normal circumstances. The problem we have is that there always will be crises, and then when the crises come, we usually have the normal, mentally healthy leaders in power, and they're not there and able to manage. Right, but
0: it. you've you flipped my question uh, on its head. I'm wondering, what about the individual who has the issues that you've identified? Are they similarly well equipped to govern at a time of stability?
2: Right, I think that's a good point. I think that, the, that Winston Churchill, for instance, was a, not a good Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s. He did a really bad job. He would have been a poor Prime Minister in the 1920s, and he was a great one in the 1940s. I think the right person needs to be selected for the right time. And it's true, these kinds of leaders do not do well in, in, in normal times and, and often probably will cause more problems as opposed to being helpful when we are living in a time where there is no crisis.
0: So you're saying that they function better in a time of crisis than in a time of non-crisis? Right. In fact, if you
2: look at the biographies of most of these leaders, you know, you look at Lincoln before the Civil War, Churchill before World War II, General William Sherman before the Civil War, they were not uh, successful, productive members of society most of their lives. It was only during the crisis that they
0: flowered. I didn't even get to Lincoln, and I'll I'll leave that for readers. Okay, here's my final final question for Dr. Nasir Ghami. Is the public ready to entertain this type of provocative argument, given the stigmas that unfortunately are still attached to mental illness?
2: Thank you very much for bringing out that point, because I think that is the central point. And and I think it's the reason why this book, which I published a few years ago, uh, had a lot of positive comment and a lot of negative comment, too. I think it touches on the fact that the public is really not yet ready to address, understand these issues dispassionately or clearly because we discriminate against people with psychiatric problems or mental conditions. Uh, Just like we have discriminated against people on race, gender, and sexual orientation and still do, but we we are more conscious of that and improving along those lines. We are not really conscious of how much discrimination we still have against psychiatric conditions. And so these ideas seem really counterintuitive and really odd, but it's partly because we're ignorant we don't know that these conditions actually have positive aspects proven, like I've described. And it's partly because we discriminate uh, at an emotional level, and we don't really consciously, we're not consciously aware how much we discriminate against these conditions. So one of thing the things that I hope, yes.
0: I was going to say, and yet the irony is that if these biases had been... Uh, In evidence, if we had known about JFK, what you know now, if if individuals in the uh, television realm had known about Ted Kennedy, if we'd known about Lincoln, if we'd known about Churchill, they wouldn't have advanced to the position where they were of such immense benefit to society.
2: That's true. And that's why they hid all these aspects of themselves from the rest of the world. Um, And, uh, you know, it was understandable and it still is understandable. I think we need to get to the point now, though, where we can at least look back on these people who've been dead for 50 years or longer and honestly judge them, honestly talk about these aspects of them, and then start drawing some conclusions about our current life and about ourselves and about the future and say, you know what, let's know about the medical and psychiatric histories of our leaders, but let's talk about it not in a pejorative negative way, but also look at the positive aspects.
0: I thank you so much for writing the book and for being here to discuss it. I thought it was fascinating, and I hope you can tell from the tone of my voice I was completely into the subject matter and uh, enjoyed the read. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Nasir Gami from Tufts University, a first-rate madness, uncovering the links between leadership and... And mental illness. Love to take some calls on this. Hope that you found it as provocative as I have. I can tell from your face that uh, that you did. Well, just two doctors chatting over there. You well, know that's, what I'm that's true. Just a, you yeah. know, just a, a PhD and a. Uh
2: Bonner- and, a bonner- doctor, <laughs> and a medical doctor. And a medical doctor. I would be
0: the former. Yeah, you're right. A little doctor chat. Exactly. In fact, I hope it wasn't too technical for the rest of you. It was a little Thank highbrow. not <laughs> yes. uh, He makes me think that,
1: that uh, mental health is the next frontier. In other words, I love what he said about... Part of it is ignorance, and part of it is there is discrimination and not knowing. It's sort of the unknown. TC, Fascinating, as we are all you know diagnosing the candidates. Well, right?
0: I, of course, I am. I am a Churchill aficionado, right. and I was well familiar with his black dog periods, which which were present throughout the course of his adult life. Um, if they had been known to the public then you know he's not going to be elected prime minister and yet looking back historically you say my god where would would we be where would the world be without the resilience of winston churchill at that time in our history and yet there's no unstopping that knowledge in other words we're not going to go back to not knowing about an individual's health i know but presumably. i think
1: it, so we need to instead do as the doctor said which is
0: look at it differently you just stole my thunder. I was I was going to say it's important to learn historically so that if you hear something, you don't immediately prejudge and preclude.
1: Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live
2: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app.
1: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.